the Eucharist as sacrifice. We've already been singing about this even in our worship. Sacrifice. Would you say that with me? Sacrifice. The Eucharist as sacrifice. We go back. I want to just take your attention back again just for a moment to recall the, the joy and the festivity and the spiritual power of Babette's feast that we looked at as we launched into this series together. And how all of those things were made possible by an extraordinary sacrifice acted out for the most part quietly and off stage in the story of Babette's feast. Only when the sisters saw Babette pale and exhausted sitting on the butcher's block and heard her story of self-emptying love after this incredible banquet of a meal had been provided by her for them. Only after they heard her story of how all of this came about and how she made all of this possible, did they realize the price that was paid for their sacred meal, the holy banquet that they enjoyed together in the story. And this, this feature of the writer, Denison, who wrote the story, it bespeaks an elemental biblical truth to us. And it is this. In a world gone wrong, there is no communion without sacrifice. There's no communion without sacrifice. Since the world is broken, having been twisted out of shape, it can be straightened and healed and made whole only through a painful process of reconfiguration. It's practically impossible to read any two pages of the Bible in succession without coming across the language of God's anger. But we must be careful not to interpret this figurative and symbolic literary expression of God's anger, interpreting it literally, as though God whimsically and arbitrarily passes in and out of emotional snits, much like we see in leaders and rulers in this world. And much as the people of God in those ancient times, in that context of the ancient Near East, which was home to them, a completely different cultural context than you or I are, fami are familiar with, but within that context, they were very familiar with pagan gods and the whole idea of sacrifices being offered to appease the anger of these pagan gods. And so for us to understand, and even for them in that day, to think of God as a loving God was a, a, somewhat of a... a 
a brain bender for them because they were so accustomed to the pagan culture that they lived in and the gods that were whimsically and arbitrarily angry and the sacrifices that were continually offered to try to appease that anger and please. It was difficult for them to see how the God of Israel, Yahweh, was different. He was not like that. And as Yahweh sought to speak to them through their cultural context in a way that they would be familiar with and understand, He patiently sought to reveal His heart of love. So even when we now read the Scriptures and we read of the anger of God and the wrath of God, we must be careful that we interpret this language properly. God is not some offended, whimsically and arbitrarily angry God who on the, the drop of a, of a dime suddenly pours out His wrath without any kind of warning and goes into some emotional rage and fit of anger, much like we would see in those pagan gods, and much like we even see today among the leaders and rulers of this world, even with what we're seeing going on right now in our news with Ukraine. In the biblical narrative, it's best for us to understand the divine wrath of God literarily. Not literally, but literarily. Let me just explain what I mean by that. To understand it as a theological symbol for the justice and the righteousness of God. Which is to say this, God's passion is to set things right. To put things to rights. And in His love and in His righteousness, God cannot allow His fallen world to remain in alienation from Him. Rather, He must do the hard work of drawing it back into communion with Him. And this means that God is continually about the business of sacrifice. The Eucharist as sacrifice. People of God, when we gather around the Lord's table, even like we have just done, we must realize that not only is it a table of communion with the sacred meal, but it's also an altar of supreme sacrifice. The Lord's table. We, of course, in these days of pandemic, we've had to take our approach to the Lord's table differently. And, of course, we've been using these sealed cups and everything else. But you will recall that prior to this, and perhaps someday we will return to this, we would come to the table. We would literally get up from our seats and come to a table that was set up in front of the room in order to represent this idea of the 
table of communion, but also an altar of sacrifice. The Eucharist is both sacred meal and supreme sacrifice. Sacred meal and supreme sacrifice. And these cannot be separated. Otherwise, the foundational biblical truth that I just articulated is compromised. Again, in a world gone wrong, there is no communion without sacrifice. Would you say that with me? There is no communion without sacrifice. And further, our times of sharing and partaking of the Eucharist together devolve into something less than fully serious, significant, and meaningful if we do not understand that this is also an altar of sacrifice. There can be no communion without sacrifice. And thus, there is no Eucharist table that is not at the same time an altar. Every time we partake of communion together, we must recognize and acknowledge the fact that a great sacrifice has been paid. So, we've looked at a biblical panorama of the Eucharist as the sacred meal. What I'd like to invite you to join me in right now is to explore with me this whole sacrificial dimension of the Eucharist. And again, I'd like to unfold the wide panoramic biblical framework. We're going to do just a kind of a cursive view over the Scriptures as a whole. So we begin in the Older Testament. We've seen how the author of Genesis articulated the foundational problem of humankind as self-deification. They wanted to strive and grasp after being uh, deified, becoming like deity themselves. The all-too-human tendency to grasp for and cling to godliness by our own human energy and resource rather than to surrender and abandon ourselves to God. God desires us to know godliness, God-likeness, Christ-likeness, righteousness, but it is not something that we can grasp after and cling to in our own energy and strength. It comes in surrender and abandoning ourselves to Him. In the garden, we see how it was grasped after in human effort alone. And the spiritual disorder that led to a rapid disintegration of the intimate union and the oneness and the wholeness that God wanted to hold sway in His creation. The intimacy of friendship and communion that He enjoyed with humankind. 
as He intended and created it to be. And in the wake of this original rupture in Genesis 3, we, we, we see how with God, male was pitted against female and female against male. And both were pitted against nature. Love having been replaced by a self-consciousness and a fear and an insecurity and a suspicion and blame and violence. What do we see uh, Eve and Adam do? They cover themselves. Suddenly, their God-consciousness is replaced with a self-consciousness. And so they seek to cover themselves. And with that, a fear and a insecurity and suspicion and blame. And, and don't we still wrestle with these very things even today in ourselves? Insecurity, fear, self-consciousness. The consequence in Yeats' poetic language, the center cannot hold, as he wrote in that great poem, The Second Coming. The center cannot hold and mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The Bible recounts this. This existential, this moral, this spiritual decline and deterioration with its typical concise narrative that the Bible so often uses. Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve, fell out of friendship. And so we, here we're seeing things start to unravel now from Genesis 3 onward. Cain and Abel, they, they fell out of friendship. Cain ruthlessly kills his brother, becoming in, in a telling detail the founder of cities. Isn't that interesting? Is there in the literature of the world any more devastating critique of the way human beings tend to organize themselves in urban contexts in terms of social status, class, and gentrification? We still see it happening today. Cain became a founder of cities. Cities where there was upper class, lower class, all these classes, division, strife, violence. By the time of Noah, Genesis 6, verse 5, says these words. I believe we have it on the screen here. Lift your voices and read this together with me, will you? By the time of Noah, the extent of human wickedness on the earth and everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. And so God accordingly sent a great flood to wipe out life on the earth. Often in the biblical stories, and we learned this in our recent Jonah series, if you recall, Often in the biblical stories, floodwaters are evocative of the primal watery chaos 
that held sway before God brought forth the order of creation. So they are a literary device. Floodwaters are often in Scripture a literary device expressive not of God's arbitrary punishment, but of the destructive power and effects of sin. We looked at this in our Jonah series. The storm that Jonah dealt with. The stormy waters. It was indicative of the effects of Jonah's disobedience. And what was going on. It wasn't a matter of a a whimsical, angry, offended God so much as here's what happens when we disobey and rebel against God's design. Things get chaotic. Things unravel. Sin is destructive. And so these floodwaters of Noah, again, we see this watery chaos that held sway even before God brought forth the order of creation. Now with the disorder that sin and disobedience and rebellion was causing, we see that chaos returning again. After Noah, the human race became once more a disordered, dysfunctional, fragmented family. Chapter 11 of Genesis tells us that the whole earth had only one language and that the people joined together in a great project to build a city at the center of which would be a tower reaching up to challenge the heavens. The Tower of Babel. This great juggernaut that that reached to the heavens. It functions as a neat biblical image of the aggressive, self-aggrandizing and imperialistic tendencies of human beings once they have lost contact with God. Let me just interject here an important study principle that is good for us to learn in, in all of our studies of the Scriptures as students of the Word. It's a study principle that's important for our proper and our appropriate reading and interpreting and understanding the Scriptures. Please hear this. We must always remember that the Bible is written for us, but not to us. It is written for us, but not to us. That is to say, what do I mean? Well, that is to say that the Bible is not written in our language and in our culture. And so we've got to make some transitions in order to properly read and understand the Bible and how the Holy Spirit would wish to illumine and unveil and reveal and speak to us through the story of the Bible. So, the ancient Near East, which was the context that we read these stories of Eve and Adam and Noah and Abraham and so on, that this was a context that where these, these terms were quite familiar to them. 
of, of the stormy waters and so on. This, they recognized all of these things as, as speaking of certain things, chaos and disorder and so on. They would understand that because it was very much a language that was used and understood within their context. But for us, when we read it, we get all caught up in whether or not, well, did the flood really happen? Well, you know what? At the end of the day, does it really matter whether the flood really happened or not? That's not the point. The point is, is that, that the, 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 the outbreak of chaos that came about as a result of sin and disobedience, which these floodwaters speak of, of course, is the message that, that, that God is trying to convey to us. Whether or not the flood really happened, whether or not the, the Red Sea was, was really as, as deep as we think it is so that the, the uh, you know, the, the Pharaoh's army was drowned and all of these things that we argue and debate about and things which are fascinating, uh, of course, to study and research. And of course, with, with, uh, with archaeological findings that have been discovered, we have learned that a lot of these things, yes, did literally take place. But when we get caught up in debating whether or not they did, we miss the whole point of the message of Scripture that God is trying to speak to us. And so it's important that we understand this study principle that while the Bible was written for us, it's not written to us. And so there are literary, literary devices that are used in Scripture. The, the, these, this, is, this is the inspired authoritative Word of God, but it's also an incredible piece of literature. And the literary devices that are used as God inspired the authors to write are devices that are often very familiar within their context, but we must do the work of interpreting in order to properly understand what God is saying. Are you tracking with me? I don't want to lose you. It's not written in our language and in our culture. So we have, to, we have to make some transitions in order to properly read and understand the Bible. That's why we must be students of the Word. That's why we, we cannot live our lives just off lightweight, fluffy devotionals. We must dig in and be students of the Word. And yes, that takes work. And yes, we don't like work. We like to be spoon-fed, don't we? Just, just give me something that'll just make me feel good for a little while. I've had a rough week. I just need a fix. <laughs> but we are called to be students, to study, Paul says to Timothy, to show ourselves approved. So I'm giving you just a little study principle there that is important to us. As, as we seek to properly understand the Scriptures and what God is truly saying to us and how the Holy Spirit would wish to illumine the truth 
of the message to us in our day and in our context without us getting all trapped and caught up in the incidentals that took place. So while these are certainly stories of history, we must be careful not to read these Genesis stories, of course, as straightforward history, but rather they are densely textured, symbolic narratives that we read here that express with the admirable economy of the ancient Near Eastern cultural worldview, they express the foundational features and aspects of sin. And that is what God is seeking to convey to us. The, the aspects and the fruit and the outcome and the destructive power of sin, violence, arrogance, division, Blaming, deception, lust for power and control, and murder. And do we still not deal with these things today? We see them in our headlines all the time. We deal with them in our own neighborhoods and cities. However, as we've already seen in our study, the God of justice will not rest. In the scriptural reading, he sets himself to the task of saving his compromised creation. And the principal means that he chooses is the formation of a people who would learn to walk in his ways and who would become thereby a light to all nations. Just after the story of the Tower of Babel, there commences the great narrative concerning Abram of Ur. Abram, the father of the nation of Israel. The first thing we hear about Abram is that he is called by the Lord. Read it together with me. It should be on the screen here for us again. Here it is. Yes. Lift your voices. Will you? Nice and loud. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. The essential problem, we said, began with disobedience. And so the solution must begin with obedience. Eve and Adam became rebels. Abram must accordingly become a willing, faithful, and obedient servant. As God seeks to save His compromised creation, He is being told... Now listen, a lot of you can relate with this because you've done this. I've done this. You can relate. We can relate with this to some measure and some degree. He is told to uproot his entire family and to move with his family to a distant land he knows nothing about 
And he is, we are informed, listen to this, 75 years old. Now, many of you have immigrated to Canada. You can relate with this whole idea of uprooting, leaving everything familiar to you, bringing your family with you or some measure of your family, coming to a land that you know nothing about. I can relate with this in the fact that I, I am born and raised in eastern Canada. I uprooted my family, left everything familiar to me, came to western Canada, the west coast, and for, for just for information's sake, you say to yourself, it's still Canada though. But it's not. <laughs> And you don't know this until you've done it within Canada. Eastern Canada is very different from Western Canada. And though we still live here in Canada, when my family and I moved here, we literally felt like we had landed in a different country. No joke. I'm totally serious. We really did. And it's the same if you go from the West to the East. You'll feel it too. And you don't understand it until you've done it. You can relate, of course, because you've come from your native lands of Africa and Malaysia and China and Korea and Indonesia and all of these places, and you've come here to Canada, foreign land, totally unfamiliar. We can relate with Abram to some measure here. And now, maybe we can't relate with him in this aspect. He was 75 when God told him to do this. So he's gray. <laughs> he's gray and going without knowing. Now, to grasp for and cling to godliness in the manner of our first parents, even Adam, is to claim lordship over one's own life. This is what we've got to understand about the significance of what Adam and Eve did. They were claiming lordship for themselves. Lordship over one's own life. But to surrender to God, as we are going to see here in Abram, to surrender to God is to realize that one's life is not one's own. We don't own our own lives if He is Lord. It's to realize that a higher and more compelling voice commands our lives. In all of this, we sense that friendship with God, and when God thinks of friendship with us, He thinks in terms of covenant. Friendship with God, a covenant with Him, would involve sacrifice, the abandonment of self, and we begin to see the spiritual importance of this juxtaposition for God's promise to Abraham involves what I've referred to as the loop or the rhythm of grace. As I've already said that in this series. The loop or the rhythm of grace. If Abram can contrive a way to make his life a gift... If he can sacrifice in trust what God has given to him, then 
his being will increase, God says. What does he say to him in verse 2? We read it together. I will make you a great nation. Say it with me. I will make you a great nation. He says, I want you to leave your country. Take your family. I want you to leave everything that's familiar to you. And I want you to go to a land I'm going to show you. He was leaving everything familiar to him to go to who knows where. He had no idea. He was going without knowing. He was 75 years old. How many know? I mean, some of you can relate with this. At 75, you're not thinking about, you know, oh, let's just, let's, let's immigrate to a new country and make it our home. You're not thinking about that. You're nicely settled in. You've got your groove down for life. You don't want anybody messing with it. You've got your routines. You've got your way of doing things. You're set. And God says to Abram, I want you to uproot, leave everything familiar to you, and go to something completely unfamiliar. I'm going to show you. And if you're willing to do this, I will make you a great nation. So as Abram in faith sets out with his family, the long education begins. The rest of the biblical narrative up to and including the story of Jesus, in fact, is the account of God's formation of the clan of Abram. A people shaped after his own heart. And this education will center around the intertwined themes of covenant and sacrifice, faithfulness and obedience. In chapter 15 of Genesis, Abram hears once again the divine promise that he will become a great nation. His descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky. But then, at this point, because Abram's heard this from God a few times now, and so at this point, he reasonably enough complains. Look what he says. Read it with me. I think it's on the screen for us. Read it. Oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? In answer, God gives a series of peculiar commands. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Genesis 15, verse 9. He then instructs Abram to cut these animals in two and place the halves side by side on the ground. And as it grew dark, Abram fell into a a kind of trance. We're not told exactly what, but it was like a deep sleep or a trance came over him and a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. Genesis 15, verse 17. On that day, Genesis tells us God made a covenant. Barith. We're seeing the beginnings now of covenant being established by God. He made a covenant with Abram, saying, I have given this land to your 
descendants. Genesis 15, verse 18. Now, there is so much here, and we've talked about the, the symbolic language and literary devices of the ancient Near East, and there's so much of that in this that, that we just, there's not time in this forum this morning to, to unpack all of this. So I realize how odd, how many think this is a really odd story? This is really weird. What in the world has Pastor been smoking this week? This is a really weird story. <laughs> and I realize that, how odd and how strange and how even incomprehensible all of this can seem to us as we read it. You know, cutting animals in half and spreading them out and a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Like, what is this? And, and so, yes, it sounds and seems very odd to us. Why should the establishment of a covenant between divinity and humanity be accompanied by a bizarre twilight ceremony involving butchered animals? Good question. It's a good question in, in, as a student of the Word to ask. And in order to grasp the matter, we have to abandon our perhaps overly tidy sanitary and antiseptic view of God. Where, you know, we, ha we, we picture God like Mr. Clean. You know, on the, the Mr. Clean uh, solution bottles that we get to clean our houses. We, we might have to just abandon that in order to understand and, and instead enter into a far earthier, more elemental view the elemental and earthier world of the ancient Near East and biblical imagination that God is working through as He speaks to Abram. Remember, Abram, this was Abram's culture. It was his context. So God is using images and language that He knows Abram will understand. Ancient peoples, Babylonians, Assyrians, Greeks, Romans, Celts, Aztecs, and Hebrews came together in the practice of offering sacrifice to God or to the gods. Offering sacrifices like this was a common thing. Pagan worshipers would offer sacrifices so for Abram, this was not strange the way it is to you and I. Because we don't live in that kind of a culture and context. Abram did. So God was relating to Abram in a way that Abram could understand. They came together, all of these different cultures, these ancient peoples. Babylonians, Assyrians, Greeks, Romans, all of them. And in the practice of offering sacrifice, to God or to the gods. The idea itself is relatively simple, though it was expressed in a wide variety of ceremonies and practices. Some part of the earth is returned to the divine principle. It's offered up in order to establish communion with the sacred power. So these pagan worshipers would offer something up 
in order to reestablish. They were always fearful that their pagan God was angry with them. So we want to appease Him. We want to give the God what He enjoys, what pleases Him. So this whole concept was very familiar to Abram. In the Hebrew context, Abram's context, both grain and animals were sacrificed to Yahweh either as thank offerings, sin offerings, or simply as signals of communion and fellowship. But in even the most benign way, even the, having those ways of little and effect or no value, seemingly insignificant sacrifices, even in those, some living thing was destroyed and offered up. According to scholars of Hebrew religious practice, the destruction of grain or animal was meant to signal the sacrificer's offering and rending of himself or herself. The offerer says, in effect, that what was happening to this animal, as in the case of the sacrifice that was Abram was, was preparing here in this story we just looked at, what is happening to this animal should happen to me. This is what I, as, as, as the one offering the sacrifice, this is what I was saying in offering the sacrifice in this way. What has happened to this animal should happen to me if I fall out of friendship with God. Or as this animal's lifeblood is poured out, so I symbolically pour out my own life in devotion and thanksgiving. That's what was being said in these offerings. And so, you see and appreciate the link between sacrifice and covenant. We're looking at the Eucharist as a sacrifice. The link between sacrifice and covenant. When God makes His covenant, His barit with Abram, He is claiming Abram as totally His. He's saying to Abram, you are mine. And he's also saying, I am yours. You are mine, and I am yours. Let me put it in a phrase that perhaps we're a little more familiar with. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And it becomes the stock characterization of the terms of the covenants that God makes with Israel up and down the centuries as we read throughout the whole Older Testament. Now, we must understand because we are a people familiar, what are we familiar with? We're not familiar with covenant in our culture. What are we familiar with? Contracts. We're contract people. Not covenant people. We serve a covenant God. But we're contract people. And so often, our contract mindset bleeds into how we look at God. And God doesn't work that way. God is a God of covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. We are familiar with contract agreements that there is 
And there's an important distinction here that we've got to understand between covenant in the Bible and contract. Because we can't let our culture define what God is trying to say to Abram. God's not talking in contract language with Abram. He's talking in covenant language with Abram. We've got to understand the difference. While the two certainly have features that are in common, more especially the, the delineation of mutually legal binding obligations, the signal difference between covenant and contract is that a contract determines what is mine, while a covenant determines who is mine. I will be your God. You will be my people. God's talking about the who, not the what. Especially for God in the covenant relationship is His self-imposed obligation and commitment for humankind's redemption. God is seriously committed to this. He's seriously committed to you and to me, to us, His people. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, the covenant has to be sealed by a sacrifice because we live in a world that is off kilter. Prior to the fall, the human pledge of fidelity to God would have been effortless. A sheer joy. But after the fall, it must come at a cost. And through a painful reconfiguration of the self. Hold fast to this language I'm using with you. Because we're going somewhere with this. As we're going to see in the ultimate sacrifice. As we think with a Christ-like lens in all of these things. There must be a cost, a price that's paid, and through a painful reconfiguration of the self. It is this inner sacrifice that's expressed symbolically through the exterior offering of grain or an animal. The animal is completely reconfigured in itself. It's cut in half. It's laid out on the ground. Nowhere is the awful link between covenant and sacrifice on clearer display than in the story recounted here in the 22nd chapter of Genesis that that I just quickly read to you and we all thought, boy, that's really weird. And then, more vividly even, is it laid out In Genesis 22, Abram's, or Abraham at this point, because God has changed his name, Abraham's binding of his son Isaac. Abram's name, we learn in Genesis 17, has been changed to Abraham when God had still again promised that he, and now, listen, now Abraham's 99 years old, He would become the father of many nations. 
though he remained childless well into extreme old age. One day, three strangers appeared at Abraham's tent. Genesis 22. And after the patriarch showed them some hospitality, they had a meal. Interesting. They promised that upon their return the following year, Sarah, his wife, would be holding a son in her arms. And though Sarah laughed upon hearing the prediction, Abraham trusted. And the prophecy came true. Isaac was not only the beloved child of Abraham's old age, but he was the fulfillment of God's covenant. That means by which God would raise up for him a mighty nation. I will make you a great nation, he said. Your children will be more than the stars of the sky. Abraham's faith in Yahweh, his covenant with the Lord, was inextricably bound up with the existence of this son, Isaac. And then, inexplicably, and without warning, Yahweh demanded that Abraham offer his son in sacrifice. Look what God says to him. Read it with me. I think it's on the screen for us. Lift your voices, will you? Abraham, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, who you love so much. Now, listen, just let me stop here. What are you hearing echo in this verse right here? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Are you seeing this? We're hearing echoes here. Abram, take your son, your only son. Read with me. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. Now, try to put yourself in Abraham's sandals. We saw that the relationship between Yahweh and Abraham began with a summons to trust and that Abraham's faith had deepened and broadened over time. But now his willingness to accept the Word of God was being put to the ultimate test. And we've skipped over a lot. You need to read the whole story for yourself. Because we're going through this really quick. But now Abraham's come to a point, well on in age now, where his, 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 the very fulfillment of the covenant has happened, and now God's saying, I want you to sacrifice the very means by which this covenant will be fulfilled. His willingness to accept the Word of God was being put to the ultimate test precisely because this command of God seemed to place God in contradiction to Himself. This order that God gives must have prompted within Abraham not only personal, psychological crisis of the highest degree, but also, if I can express it this way, it, there must have been some measure of theological crisis for Abraham. In a supreme paradox, listen closely, 
In a supreme paradox, God wanted Abraham to ratify the covenant by a willingness to sacrifice the very condition for the possibility of the covenant. The very means by which the covenant was going to happen. He was to surrender what was dearest to him. To give Isaac to God, seeing his son not primarily as his own possession, but rather as God's gift to him. And ingredient in God's mysterious design. This story is a rich and powerful in-depth study of its own. For our purposes here, we're just taking a quick glance at the story. In the course of three terrible days, we are told Abraham led Isaac to the mountain of sacrifice, enduring even the plaintiff, his son even questions, Isaac questions, Father, we have fire and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Abraham must have gone through a spiritual, a psychological torture beyond description. We don't know. We're not told what is going on within Abraham's mind. Then at the climactic moment, as he was about to plunge the knife into his son, the angel of the Lord spoke, telling Abraham to cease and desist. Read it with me. Verse 12 here, will you? Don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. We see why this story loomed so large in defining Israelite history. If you were to talk to a devout Jew today, this story would be very familiar to them because it defines who they are in so many ways. It surpasses in significance even the events of Sinai and Moses and the giving of the law. If, if as we have been studying, the basic human problem began with self-assertion in the garden to the point of self-deification, then the solution must come through the most radical kind of self-surrender to God, through the absolute trust, no strings attached, that the Bible calls faith. Israel at its best, including the supreme Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth, will be conditioned by the power of Abraham's faith and the covenant union between God and humankind will always, always, always be accompanied by a willingness in faithful obedience to sacrifice. St. Paul seems to refer to this event near the end of Romans 8 as he interprets the mysterious scandal of the cross of Christ. Boasting in God's protection and provision, Paul says this, What shall we say? about such wonderful things as these. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since He did not spare even His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, won't He also give us everything else? Now, when we read Hebrews, 
we learn some things about Abram and this story of him offering up Isaac. In fact, Hebrews seems to show us that Abraham somehow, even though he was probably wrestling with all of this in a very human way as a father, somehow in his faith, he knew that God would not contradict himself. And so he gave himself faithfully to follow the instructions of the Lord, knowing that the Lord would provide. And of course, he does. And so Paul says, if God is for us, who can ever be against us? What can ever come against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up as a, for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Closely read, Christ's story is seen not to be a story of death. Indeed, it is not the reversal of Isaac's story, but a divine reprise of it. The story of Isaac prefigures what we are going to see happen with Christ. It's a foreshadow. In it, God does not require a sacrifice of us. He makes a sacrifice for us. Just as He did for Abraham. He led Abraham even to the very end and then He provides. As He sees the truth of Abraham's faith. And He makes it only so that through it, through his provision, he might give his own life. Unlike Isaac, Jesus dies, to be sure. But not because the Father takes his life or abandons him to death. And that is precisely the point. His life cannot be taken. Jesus himself said, the Father loves me because I sacrifice my life. There it is. Sacrifice so that I may take it back again. No one can take it from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up for this is what my Father commanded. Jesus' life is nothing other than the bond He has with the Father. A bond that is inviolable. As Jesus lays him da Himself down God is laying Himself down on the altar. God is making provision with Himself for you and me. And so it is that nothing can separate us from God any more than it can separate God from God. God in Christ and God the Father. And no matter that we so often hear this great story told otherwise, as I depicted earlier, that God is some kind of offended deity, angry and snarly and wrathful, ready if he's bloodthirsty, dying for blood. So the only way I'm going to get it, I'm going to kill my son. How often have we heard the story that way? That's not the heart of God. God willingly lays Himself down and gives Himself in love for us. It is the act of God with God and with us against death 
against sin and all deathly powers. And so that's why we can pray as we prayed yesterday with Faye. We thank You, Jesus, because You overcame death by death. You undid death by death. You undid sin by death. You overcame. The sting and the pain and the fear of death is no longer effective. He overcame all deathly powers. Christ not only died for us, He died as us. It is a sacrifice, yes, to be sure. But what makes it what it is, is that it is a sacrifice in which, and this is the incomprehensible mystery of it, in which the living somehow remains alive. God lays Himself down in death. And yet he, he lifts himself up again in resurrection. It's, 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 we cannot comprehend this great mystery. But yet it was done in love for you because he so loved you and me. And we too are called in our new creation humanity to give our bodies to God, our human lives to God, because of all He has done for us. And Paul says in Romans 12, 4, 12 verse 1, let them be a living. Want, look, look at the language here. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. Your human lives. A living. Not a dead one. A living. Just like Christ was a living sacrifice. Though He died, He was a living sacrifice. Such paradox and mystery. But this is, the, this is the mystery that we call our love story, beloved. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, your life and mine, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Romans 12, verse 1. Would you stand with me? I've, I've bent your mind all out of shape. We've, we've messed with, with our, our theology, perhaps, that we've grown up with. Our whole understanding of the story of Christ has been uh, completely thrown off kilter. I don't know how your, your head is spinning and your heart is whirling right now. But, beloved, know this. Meditate on these things. And as we do, as we meditate on these things, and as we say, Holy Spirit, help us to see these things. Unveil the truth of this to me that I might truly be a living sacrifice myself. That I might lay my life down willingly in worship before You and live fully human the way You intended me to live. New creation humanity because of what You have provided. That I might live this fully. For this is my great act of worship before you in the day-to-day -day life that I live. It's not just the songs I sing here, but it's the way I live my life as a living sacrifice before you. May it be a sweet incense, a sweet aroma, my life to you. And may it be a sweet aroma that draws many others to the Father by the Spirit working through the living sacrifice of my life 
Amen.